what exactly happened here? Was she shot and then she was hacked? We're, we're at that point, we were guessing, geez, did somebody use a shotgun on her down there? Did they use a chainsaw on her down there? The inhumanity, the savagery, the brutality of this is off the charts. In 1996, someone murdered a woman in central New York in a grisly, horrific way. They detonated an explosive device inside of her and left her for dead. Her killer has never been found. This is one of the most disturbing homicides in Syracuse history, and we have never reported details about Carol Ryan's life as well as her death. We believe her cold case deserves more attention. For a quarter century, the murder of Carol Ryan has eluded police, but someone knows something. I'm Katrina Tulloch, and I've spent the last year digging into this case with a team of journalists. Carol's friends and family feel like everyone has forgotten her. But we haven't. From Syracuse.com, this is Firecracker. It is painful to hear how Carol Ryan was killed. Her case did not get national attention. The details are grisly. It all started with a fisherman. He wakes up early, September 1st, 1996. It's 5 a.m., and the fisherman is driving north on Route 91. He's hoping to catch some bass in the large reservoir near Jamesville, New York, just south of Syracuse. Something caught his eye on the side of the road. It was a woman, lying on the ground, alone. She was face down on the pavement. He pulled over and opened the car door. By the glow of his headlights, he could see her hair was auburn. Her skin was bruised and covered with scratches. She was naked. Her backside had a gruesome wound. The fisherman ran to a nearby security office to call 911. He then returned to stay with the woman before an ambulance arrived. She couldn't move. She could not answer his questions. What happened? Who did this to you? She was rushed to a local hospital and underwent emergency surgery, but her injuries were too traumatic. Carol died at Upstate University Hospital five hours after she was found. What they did was unusual and strange and horrifying. That's Dr. Mary Jambelic. We'll hear lots more from her later on. Dr. Jambelic wrote Carol's autopsy report, which was 22 pages long manner of death? Homicide. Carol Ryan, 42, had been violated in an unthinkable way. Somebody raped her with an explosive device and detonated it. But she didn't die right away. She was left for dead in that driveway in Jamesville, New York. 27 years later, her murder remains unsolved. It brings back a lot of bad memories. And just that there's somebody out there that could do something so terrible to another human being was very disturbing, and that's why it stuck in my mind. And I still feel ownership over it to this day, and I'm not even there anymore. That's the voice of Carl Kruger. He was the original lead detective assigned to Carol's case in 1996. Even nearly three decades later, this case sticks with him. He calls it the one regret of his career. 
I remember the night of my retirement party, somebody asked me, what are your regrets? I only have one. I said, and that's that, I, that Carol Ryan wasn't solved before I left. Carl is retired now. He spent decades working various departments at the Onondaga County Sheriff's Office. Carl was 36 at the time of this murder. He wasn't a rookie. He worked other homicide cases before, but this was the first one he oversaw. I remember, you know, some staining, obviously, blood stains, and um, the, these red paper fragments that at first didn't make any sense to us. You know, we're going, what the heck is this? And then when we start getting word in from the hospital, um, then we went, oh my God, that's, that's firework fragments. We asked Carl to meet us in Jamesville and show us exactly where Carol was found. No, she was right on the pavement here, right at the entrance. Like, like I said, right about here. We knew it was in the driveway of the Onondaga County Resource Recovery Agency compost site in Jamesville. But we didn't realize how close to the road she was. If you were driving by even at sunrise, it would have been difficult to miss her. Yeah, he just, he, as he was driving by, he caught her out of his peripheral vision and saw something there. He goes, was that a deer? And he goes, mm, I, it didn't look like a deer to me. And that's his intuition. He just happened to turn around and come back. And thank God he did. The location is about 15 to 20 minutes from downtown Syracuse. And that's where Upstate University Hospital is. An ambulance on Labor Day weekend probably would have taken 10 to 15 minutes to get her to the emergency room. Carl is not the only one deeply affected by Carol's case, not by a long shot. Former Onondaga County Sheriff Gene Conway was the captain of the Criminal Investigations Division in 1996. Conway retired in 2022, but says the details of this case still bother him today. You know, Carol Ryan's never been forgotten by us, certainly. Um, she's certainly more than an unsolved homicide. She's a human being, and she certainly didn't need to have her life ended that way. Um, and for whatever caused the person or persons to do what they did, in my mind, there's absolutely no justification for it. This crime happened the Sunday before Labor Day, and the normal rotation of detectives was different. Carl got the call. I don't want to say it was a turning point in my career, but it was, it was my first homicide that I was in charge of. I, I remember Gene Conway being out here and he's going, this is yours. I immediately felt the weight on my shoulders. Carol could not speak to the first responders. She was beaten so badly that Detective Carl Kruger said they couldn't even identify her race at the time. Well, is she, is she white? Is she black? Is she, you know, Asian? Is she, you know, Hispanic? And they're going, we could not tell. Couldn't tell. And I said, what do you mean? They said, her face was so badly bruised and blackened that you couldn't tell. And like I told you, that's when the doctor kind of pried her eyes open and told us what color her eyes were. That's how I, her, her eyes were swollen shut, completely shut. And Carol was naked. She had been wearing a black jacket and dark pants. She had a silver necklace and that was gone. Her shoes were gone too. But she was still wearing two rings, on her right pinky finger, a 10-carat gold band with two green stones and one small diamond. On another finger, a white gold band with an opal. One of her rings was missing. She was already gone. She'd already been transported to the hospital when I got out here. And, uh, but the guys that originally responded told me in detail, you know, what they found. 
we're, we're at that point, we were guessing, geez, did somebody use a shotgun on her down there? Did they use a chainsaw on her down there? I mean, that's how devastating the injury was. A chainsaw? So it was really it just was, every was, everywhere. Her, her yes. body was everywhere. Yes. Detectives set up several yellow signs to mark possible evidence to be collected for the forensic lab. And those red paper fragments were everywhere. Because we sent all that stuff to the ATF, and I think they just came back determining on the size, the blast, and everything else, that they said it probably was the size of an M80. Throughout this podcast, people are going to refer to the explosive as an M80. Now, that's a large type of firecracker, but it's not totally accurate. As Carl said, the detective sent the explosive material to ATF. That stands for Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, but they also specialize in explosives. The Bureau most accurately described this as an M80-style recreational explosive. It wouldn't have as much explosive material as your typical M80. But they're illegal either way. And then we start finding, like I told you, the remnants of the um, explosive paper you know, that uh, yes. M80 was wrapped in and stuff like that. And we got word from the ER that they'd found, you know, on an M80, they got the pla- the wax ends on it to make them um, like waterproof if you want to throw them in the water. Uh, they found one of these wax tabs inside of her. Oh God, so. So that's when we went, it was explosives. There was never a question like, was it just laid on top of her? The doctor or doctors and the ME said it, it definitely looks like it was inserted inside of her. What kind of sick person would do such a thing? The only thing worse than knowing someone did this to Carol is knowing the blast did not kill her. When the fisherman found Carol, she was still alive. It's so terrible. She obviously suffered that day. But her family, her loved ones, everything have suffered for the last 26 years. You know, that's a long time. That's a long time not to be able to put it to rest. The grandkids asking, what happened to grandma? How do you, dis- how do you explain that? There are no other crimes in Onondaga County like this. Not before or since. We're going to talk a lot more about who Carol was and where she lived in the next episode. But here's an overview. Carol was living in Syracuse, New York in 1996. And Syracuse is a blue-collar city built on the backs of auto part makers, an air conditioning company, and the Erie Canal. It's two hours from Buffalo, four hours from the Big Apple. And it's surrounded by beautiful lakes and mountains. But the city is also plagued by entrenched poverty. If you're not from here, you might know Syracuse best for its college basketball team and that cranky old coach, Jim Beheim. And our winters are snowier here than anywhere else in America. Syracuse is a beautiful place to live, but it was the setting of one of the ugliest, most shocking murders in the history of central New York. You know, she liked to have a good time. She liked to go to concerts. You know, she loved dancing. Most of the time at the bar, you wouldn't find her at the bar. You would find her on the dance floor. Even if she was the only one dancing, she would dance her soul out. That's the voice of Sean Hamilton. Sean was Carol Ryan's only child. Carol was a young mom, and Sean called her his best friend. There was not a shy bone in her body. She was one hell of a good woman. We'll hear a lot more from Sean later on. For now, let's go back to the place where Carol was found. 
In those first 48 hours, detectives were at a loss. Such a violent crime seemed like it would absolutely have to be premeditated. It seemed like the work of someone who knew Carol, who drove her out to a remote location, and had a plan to hurt her in this sadistic way. With so many violent crimes, often the attacker is someone the victim knows well. The spouse, the boyfriend, maybe an ex. Nearly half of female homicide victims are killed by a partner. So it makes sense the first person police tracked down was Carol's ex-boyfriend. His name was Bobby McGee. They did not live together. Carol lived alone in Grant Village. That is an apartment complex in Eastwood, which is a residential neighborhood within the city of Syracuse. When detectives went knocking on doors in Eastwood after she died, her neighbors told them Carol was fighting with Bobby and they could hear their arguments loudly. We immediately found out what her past relationships were, the most recent ones anyway, and that's when we brought her boyfriend in because we'd learned through a neighborhood canvas out in Grand Village that they'd had a, an argument the day before. He was over pounding on her door. They don't think he ever got in the apartment, but they were certainly arguing through the door, so he was obviously our first person of interest right off the bat. According to public records, Bobby was 36 in 1996. He was younger than Carol by six years. So we brought him in immediately. I spent two, three hours with him. And literally, I think we brought him in at least probably half a dozen times after that to be interviewed. I wish I could have interviewed Bobby McGee myself, but he died in 2012. He was 52. But we did track down Bobby's sister, Teresa. His original name was Robert, but everybody called him Bobby. Now, Teresa made it very clear she and Bobby were not close. My lifestyle is totally different than my brothers and sisters, but... Yeah, you, you mentioned that you're not very close, but do you, like, knowing what you know of him, do you think he would even be capable of, of killing someone? No, and I'm not just saying it because my brother, mm. um, but no, I totally believe that he would not be capable of doing anything. Because if I'm not mistaken, I remember them talking about it. And he was very, very upset whenever, you know, it was brought up, so. Now, none of this means Bobby is off the hook, just because his sister said he was upset about it. But she offered some useful context for what kind of guy Bobby was. I don't think he had a car, either. No, he didn't. He didn't drive. I don't believe he ever got his license, to be honest. How he got around, I mean, he walked or hitchhiked. And this guy gets in a big fight with Carol just days before she's brutally killed? I mean, come on. So I kept pressing Carl on this, and he explained why detectives did not keep pursuing Bobby as a main suspect. Just pieces of information that kind of made us shy away from him. We, you know, we determined he was living with another couple, had no access to a car that they knew of. He hadn't borrowed theirs. The car, their car never left the driveway that night. And he got around mainly, his main mode of transportation was a bicycle, and there's no way he transported her out here on a bicycle. We even went to the point we showed him some scene pictures to try and rattle him, and he was very emotionally distraught from it, which again made us think, this is how somebody that cared about her would react. He wasn't smirking, he wasn't, you know, his, his, his emotions that he showed were very genuine. You know, he was very distraught when, when he found out. Okay, so Bobby doesn't have a car, 
and he's appearing to be genuinely upset about all of this. I started to see more why cops thought he was less of a hot lead and more of a bad ex-boyfriend. We ended up getting not a rock solid alibi, but enough of an alibi where the spotlight kind of came off him and we went back to the drawing board again. Instead, could this murder be the work of a stranger who didn't know Carol? The sheer choice to destroy a woman's genitalia suggests a deep hatred of women. But was there a reason she was chosen? Or was Carol in the wrong place at the wrong time? There is another main suspect Carl told us about. Well, one of the theories were, well, as he brought up your parking, because this used to be a favorite parking spot of the one person I told you about. When Carl says that one person I told you about, he's being careful. This other suspect was a man who saw Carol the night before she was killed. He wasn't someone who knew Carol well. Detectives could not find a previous connection between her and this stranger. But at least three other people in law enforcement brought the stranger up to us. And he is a suspect who is still alive. We'll tell you a lot more about him later on. First, it's important you understand the strangeness of the crime scene. Detectives noticed Carol had been left just a few feet from the road. We obtained crime scene photos showing exactly where Carol was found. And you can see them yourself on Syracuse.com firecracker. She was just across the road from the reservoir, which was deep. If the killer wanted to dump her body in the water, he could have done so easily. That would have made it harder to find her and harder to collect evidence. But instead, he left her there to be easily found by anyone driving on Route 91 the next day. Also here, I say he, not knowing for sure if the killer is a man. But Carl, the detective, offers some insights on that. There were never any female subjects or suspects. No, right? no. Do you think a woman could have done this? I guess a woman can do anything a man can do. So if you were mad enough and evil enough, I guess, yes, it probably could. But just nobody in the investigation ever came to light as a, a person, person of interest as far as a suspect went. Nobody in her past. She didn't have any enemies, so to speak, that would have been responsible for anything like that. We talked to several other experts in law enforcement who confirmed no women have been persons of interest in this case. As far as they can see, this murder was the work of a man. There's another odd thing that we should point out. The medical examiner noted drag marks on Carol's back in her autopsy report. Investigators believe she was beaten first in another location, then dragged to that driveway. Now this is strange. Why wouldn't the killer make any attempt to hide her body? This guy already dragged her once, but didn't make an effort to drag her again? If your intent is to kill someone, wouldn't you at least try to cover it up? He left her in such an easy-to-find location, it's almost like he wanted her on display. An effort to humiliate, to send a message. The timing of the crime is important. September 1st in Syracuse is still summer. The days are long and warm, if not hot. And with the New York State Fair going on, it adds plausibility to this being the work of a stranger, someone passing through. The cops wondered who carries around firecrackers in their car. But the 4th of July was only two months prior, yes. And as her son, Sean, said, Carol went by a nickname, Firecracker. My mom was born on 4th of July and 
she had strawberry blonde hair. And my mom was a, you know, she was a firecracker in life. Sean is in his 50s now, but he was 25 when his mother was brutally attacked and killed. He's been filled with grief and rage all these years. The Onondaga County Sheriff's Department, they're a joke. They treat you like shit. But I tell you what, I bet you if it was the mother of one of these cops that this happened to, I bet you a lot of things would have been a lot different on this. Next time on Firecracker. We know where Carol Ryan went the night she was attacked. I think she came in, it had to be like around one o'clock because it was late. I remember a lot, unfortunately. Really? Kind of haunted me because I felt guilty. (laughs) Firecracker is a production by Syracuse.com. It was written and recorded by me, your host, Katrina Tellick. Our executive producer is Lauren Long. Our senior producer is Crystal Lemchek. With reporting and fact-checking by Samantha House and Scott Trimble. Audio production by Jim Kulikowski and Colin Schmeling. To see exclusive photos and stories about Carol Ryan, visit Syracuse.com firecracker. Thank you for listening.